You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It was a big weekend for bisexual visibility. Most famously, most perhaps importantly, Tom Daly, not to be confused with Tom DeLay. Tom DeLay is a former Republican congressman, total douchebag, uh, broke the law, went to prison, conviction overturned, asshole, went on Dancing with the Stars. Not Tom DeLay. Tom Daly, 19-year-old British Olympic diver, gold medal winner, a huge icon in, in Great Britain, uh, can rock a speedo. He's 19. We're not going to dwell on that. Came out as – in a relationship with a man. He has a boyfriend and he is in love. And he recorded this video because there's been speculation about his sexuality ever since he became this huge star at the 2010 London Olympics. And he decided to get out ahead of the rabid tabloid press in Great Britain and just say it himself. And he said it on YouTube. Talked about the fact that he's in love uh, and has a boyfriend and it's all good. And then he added, I still fancy girls. So yay, huge victory for the bisexual community in England. And also this weekend in America, Maria Bello, who is a, an actress. She's a famous actress. She's been in a lot of high-profile movies. She came out as in a relationship herself with a woman after having been married to two men. So another big score for bisexual visibility this weekend. Tom Daly, the diver, Maria Bello, the actress, both came out as – being in same-sex relationships, but bi, not gay or lesbian. Gay, as I've said a lot, I like bisexuals so much I want there to be more of them. I'm not going to dwell on the fact that when I told people I was had a boyfriend, I added that I still fancied girls as well, but we'll just leave that by the side of the road for now and celebrate and welcome Tom Daly, not DeLay, and Maria Bello into the LGBTQTLFTSQ again, IA community. Welcome. You're awesome. One of you is a terrific actress and one of you is soaking wet all the time in Speedos. So yeah, come on in. We needed a bi guy who can really rock a Speedo. We got plenty of gay guys who can rock Speedos. Haven't seen many bi guys who can rock a Speedo. Terry's holding it down for the gay guys. Terry's Fots on Instagram. Tom Daly is holding it down for the 19-year-old bisexual community boys. But in addition to celebrating all this new bisexual visibility this weekend in the United States and in Great Britain, all over the world, um, I wanted to point out something that I thought was really interesting and moving about Maria Bello's piece in the New York Times this weekend. She wrote a modern love column for the Sunday Style section. It's where she came out about being in a relationship with a woman, being in a relationship with a woman named Claire uh, after having been in two relationships, two marriages with men. Um, and it's a really moving piece. It's about how she came out to her 12-year-old son, Jackson, about being in this relationship with this woman, Claire, who'd been a part of Jackson's life prior. She'd been a really close friend of Maria Bellows for a very long time and Jackson knew her. Um, and then they became romantically involved and it was kind of a surprise to both Maria and Claire when they became involved. Um, and you hear this sometimes from uh, women who you – know, female sexuality being much more fluid. There's a lot of women out there who – are in uh, opposite-sex relationships, even opposite-sex marriages earlier in their lives and later in life, they sort of roll on over. They flew it on over to a same-sex relationship. Um, so her experience isn't, uh, I, I think, that atypical for a lot of uh, women her age and at her stage of life. 
Um, but what I thought was really beautiful in this piece is she talks about her relationship with her ex-husband, Dan, and how involved they are still with each other. She talks about in this piece, which you should go look up, uh, just Google modern love coming out as a modern family, New York Times, Maria Bello, it just pops right up. She talks about what it is to be someone's partner and how we use that term to connote just people that you are having sex with. And is she not still partnered? Is she not still partners with her ex-husband, Dan, with whom she's raising uh, their son, Jackson? They're together a lot. They are partners um, still, even though they are not necessarily in a sexual relationship anymore. And it's really a, a beautiful point um, that you can have more than one partner in your life, more than one person that you rely on. And sex should not be necessarily the defining characteristic of a partnership, that you can have a partnership uh, with a sibling. You can have a partnership uh, with someone that you used to be married to. Uh, you can have a partnership with someone that you are currently romantically and sexually involved with and that maybe we can have more than one partner at more than one time who are all equal to each other. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful piece. Um, and what I was most touched by, something I've talked about a lot, we define marriage in a very peculiar way. Uh, it's a success if somebody's dead. If a couple divorces, their marriage failed. The marriage was a failure if there was a divorce. And if you're together until somebody dies, then your marriage was a success. doesn't matter if your husband got hit by a truck on the way to, the, to see an attorney about filing for divorce. If he got run over and died while you were technically still married, your marriage succeeded. But if both of you survived that marriage, um, it failed and it's a tragedy. And it ain't necessarily so and we have to really adjust how we think and talk about marriages. If you are together, you're married and it, it's very – acrimonious and high conflict and you hate each other and the divorce is bitter and protracted and awful and vicious and you can't be in the same room together and you don't speak anymore. Yeah, that marriage fucking failed. But if you have a marriage like Dan and Maria's marriage where you're together for some time, you loved each other with this real affection, you had children together and then you part ways, you divorce, you, you, you go into new relationships, you have new partners but you love and support each other and you are still partners. You are still together a lot of the time. You are still there for each other. Maria talks in her piece about uh, a medical crisis where she was very ill and the people at her side were Claire, her son Jackson and Dan. She talks about how Dan just turned 50 and there was a big birthday party for Dan that she threw for him with Claire and Jackson. They are partnered still. They love each other still. I think that their marriage, Dan's and Maria's, has to be counted a success. It has to be in the success column even though they are not still married. Their marriage succeeded. They both outlived it, but it did succeed. It's a beautiful piece coming out as a modern family in the New York Times this weekend. Go look it up. And if you want to see a different kind of beautiful piece, go to YouTube and look up Tom Daly. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm a masculinish lesbian in my mid-30s, and I have a gender question. I don't want to be transphobic or a hater, but I find it really uncomfortable when I'm asked, what pronoun do you prefer? I know that the question is a transsensitivity thing, but the problem is I really couldn't care less about pronouns or gender issues. In the non-queer world, I'm used to dealing graciously with mix-ups or confusion, and while my voice, small stature, and breath, mean most people identify me as a woman, I really don't care or try to correct anyone who thinks I am a man. If someone seems uncomfortable about my presentation, I try to joke and put them at their ease, rather than schooling them or getting huffy. In queer circles, though, the norm is to have a preference and a long story to tell about how and why you identify as something. But I don't, and I'd like to make this clear to people. Is this a rude, ungenerous impulse I should control? Or is it okay to say something like, I don't give a fuck what people want to call me? I'd really love to push back against the current fashion for everybody to have gender angst, 
but I'm worried I'm being less generous to other queers than I am to straight people, and that it might be more polite to just pretend I have a preference for female pronouns. What do you think? I think that if you don't have a preference and someone asks, you can say, I don't care. Either. What's your preference for pronouns? Either. Well, I actually just now accidentally endorsed the pronoun binary. There's not just two. You can be all sorts of crazy pronouns now. I was just at a meeting in Oregon with a queer student group where we all went around the table and introduced ourselves. And this is always a nightmare for me because I cannot remember my name. And to be introduced to you know 12 or 20 people sitting around a table uh, and be trying to remember their names. But it wasn't just names. Everybody got to say what their preferred pronouns were as we went around the table. So I was supposed to remember their names and their pronouns, some of which were really inconsistent. Like he, Zim, and Ver. Like what the fuck? Uh, so you know, twenty people, three different potential pronouns. I can't do it. So I just pointed at people. Uh, the, the thing is, though, you say that rather than schooling people or getting huffy at them, as some folks do, mm, you tend to be a bit more polite and engaging. At least with the straight folks. With the queer folks, this gets under your skin. The reason people in Queerland uh, and even allies in Queerland are going to be much more trepidatious about this and tiptoeing around you on eggshells if your gender presentation is ambiguous or androgynous at all is because they probably stepped on this very landmine having a conversation with someone else where they used the wrong pronoun and they got yelled at and schooled and somebody got huffy and feelings got hurt and now they are super duper cautious and careful. And you're annoyed. What can you do? Ah, I'm annoyed because you were insensitive because you made an assumption. Ah, ah. Uh, And then that same person turns around and there you are being annoyed because they're asking you what your personal preference is for pronouns when they got their head cut off them a week ago for failing to ask. You are just going to have to suffer. You are the unintended casualty here. You are the – the sad and uncounted victim in the pronouns war, the person who could give a shit, who's constantly asked, much to her annoyance. So just bear that in mind. When you meet somebody and they look at you like, oh my god, I don't know what pronoun to use, uh, it's not their problem really. You have the person who blew up at them three interactions ago to thank for the question that they're putting to you. And the answer, of course, is I don't give a shit. Use any pronoun you like. How hard is it to say that? Hi, I'm a 19-year-old heterosexual male, and I'm still a virgin. It's kind of really just screwing me up whenever I go on dates with people. I just end up fucking it up somehow and not getting a one-night stand, maybe because I'm coming on too weird or I don't tell them I'm a virgin. Also, I was thinking maybe if I just, uh, like, I found an escort service, but I don't know how much it costs. I was wondering if I should just do escort, uh, the escort service. And then, you know, just lose my virginity that way. So I just don't have to be so, like, forcing on people. I can't tell you to, you know, go hire an escort to lose your virginity because that would be, you know, endorsing prostitution. But I can tell you to go get a sex surrogate, which is another sort of fancy bonus syllable term for sex worker. So, yeah, I think you're actually a really good candidate for – because you're so anxious and pent up about this and I'm sure you're being extremely unpleasant to the women who will go on dates with you if what they sense is this urge on your part, this panic, this desire to lose your virginity at all costs including the price of making yourself repulsive in the moment to that woman who might have been thinking about it until you were a little too chomping at her bits for her to deal with. 
I think going to a, finding a nice sex worker and telling her that you, this is a problem for you and you just want to get this over with and you want to be sexually initiated and schooled and you're 19 years old and you're a virgin and to really sound out a couple like independent contractors find a woman in her late 20s, 30s who has her own website, much less likely to be trafficked um, than somebody younger or closer to your own age and just put it out there. This is who I am. This is my problem and I think it would help me romantically if I could put my virginity behind me and my panic about losing it wasn't then queering my dates with girls who might be interested in me otherwise. So I just want to put this behind me and have a few sessions with somebody who is patient and understanding and kind and experienced and put it to a couple of women that you contact that way and I bet you're going to find a woman who's actually excited, uh, not perhaps sexually excited but professionally excited about the opportunity that you would represent, that this would be her not just doing her job but doing good by doing her job and helping a dude out and not just you but all of your future potential dates and partners. So make that call. Hi, Dan. I'm a 19-year-old bisexual female from the Midwest and I have an interesting question about safeties at orgies or group meetups. I got invited to my first swingers party, and after thinking about it, I realized I have a problem. I'm deathly allergic to bees, which includes the beeswax. Beeswax is found in almost every type of chapstick. Now, with playing with a large group, I would not be able to kiss anyone just because they could have kissed someone else wearing a product with beeswax. This also leaves me to no one can go down on me. My question is, how can I find a way to make sure no one wears any beeswax products or how can I stay safe and prevent a trip to the emergency room? Yeah, you're in a tough spot. I would urge you to go to swingers parties in July when Thanksgiving should happen as well. Go to swingers parties in July when your risk of being exposed to chapstick and other lip balms is much lower. You can't send out a notice in advance to everybody else coming to this party that they're not allowed to use lip balm. You just can't. So you're going to have to protect yourself proactively by asking people if they're wearing chapstick or by assuming that they are or that they've recently kissed someone else who is and using dental dams so people want to go down on you and just taking kissing right off the menu. And if this is only a problem when you ingest orally or vaginally, I guess somehow, uh, it's pretty easy at an orgy to say no kissing and latex barriers for everything, please, or I'll die. And people at swingers parties are usually pretty good about respecting other people's limits and the requirements for safety. And if you just put it out there, just tell the fucking truth, they'll think, oh, we really have to work with her. We have to accommodate her allergy. If you try to dictate to everyone about when and whether they can use lip balm because someone with this sensitivity is coming to the orgy, they're going to think you're crazy. So don't dictate accommodate. Latex barriers. Don't kiss me. I'm allergic. And hey, trip to the emergency room. You never know how hot an ER doctor is going to be. Hey, Dan. Got a question for you. So I'm a 31-year-old single woman in the Midwest. Um, I have a really great boyfriend. Love him a lot. Planning on getting married. Um, everything about him is great, including the sex, but I have a little conundrum. So we have sex and it's great for me and I normally come and like 10 or 15 minutes, but it takes him like an hour to come. And that's with like serious, like almost jackrabbit type activity going on. I thought that was strange. So 
we're talking and I was asking him about, you know, well, how do you masturbate or does it take you this long when you masturbate? And he's like, well, yeah, at least a half hour. And I'm like, well, how are you masturbating? And he's like, well, you know, just my hand, like just totally dry. And I think there's something wrong with this here. So kind of two questions. One, how can I get my boyfriend to come faster? Because I don't want him inside me for a whole hour, just straight stroke. And that's way too long. And two, could this at all be related to the fact that he masturbates with his dry hand? So can he, like, retrain his dick? Can he, like, start masturbating with lots of lube and going slower? And hopefully that will help him learn how to come faster with me. If we reverse the genders uh, on your call, on your question, people would be upset with you. If you were the man who came in about a half an hour and you were with a woman who took a half an hour when she masturbated or a full hour during intercourse – uh, in order to climax and you were complaining about that and wanted to figure out a way to rein her in and cut her time in half or by three quarters, the time she needs to get there and get off, uh, people would scream and yell and say, that's just the way her junk works. That's what her pussy needs and you got to give her what she needs to get her off. You've got to reciprocate. You've got to do what it takes to get your partner off, give them pleasure and you shouldn't complain about it. But because you're a woman and he's a dude, this is a problem and it is a problem as you point out that you can't endure a full hour of him jackrabbiting in and out of you, that that's going to get you way past the comfort zone. That's going to take you outside any reasonable comfort zone. But this is – returning to the tortured gender reversal metaphor earlier, this is how his dick works. This is what it takes for him to get off. Uh, I'm guessing he's circumcised. Sometimes people who are circumcised lose – men who are circumcised lose so much nerve endings and sensitive tissues that just the nerve endings in the gland aren't enough and they really have to pound themselves uh, in, in order to climax. Just like some women need Hitachi magic wand and deep vibration and, and pressure and really intense pressures that perhaps no dick can provide in order to climax and we tell those women – do what it takes. Let's do what it needs. Let's let, let's get you what you need to get you off. Not feel bad about how the other ways that other people can get off. This is the way you get off, and you should embrace it and go with it. And this is how he gets off. And so the question for you two is: How do you embrace it? How do you go with it without shredding your pussy every time you guys have sex? Without you having to get pounded for an hour? There are workarounds here. Maybe. I wouldn't hold out too much hope. Maybe if he starts masturbating in a different way, maybe if he starts masturbating with lube, that would have to be combined with him not masturbating with lube for a little while, it not working and then reverting to his dry hand, not picking up a T-shirt or a sock and wiping everything off and then in the last few minutes or 20 minutes or however long it takes him, reverting. If you want to retrain a dick, you've got to cut it off from the stimulation source that it was acclimated to. You've got to say there will be lube now. There will not be a death grip. I'm not going to – you're not going to get it the way you used to get it and you're going to adapt and learn to get pleasure from this or you are never going to come again. And if a guy can push through that, yeah, a guy can to some extent retrain his dick. Guys have retrained themselves so that they don't rely on the death grip. The death grip being you know, holding your dick, gripping it so firmly – in your hand in a way that no throat, no pussy, no ass can grip your dick and really pounding at yourself. No orifice can do that for you. But if you stop doing that, if you're a guy out there listening who has this problem, if you stop doing that and you shift to a lighter touch and a little bit of lubricant and you never revert to that death grip, you don't in the last couple of minutes so frustrated from not coming, finish yourself off with the problem style of masturbation 
Eventually your dick in a panic will figure it out. But you may go without coming for months until that happy event. Will that work for your boyfriend? I don't know. It's worth a try. You can get him masturbating with things that are a little bit more vag-like, a little lotion, a little lubricant. Get him a fleshlight or a masturbatory sleeve or aid that's a bit more orify-ish. In the meantime, though, and this is far likelier to be the solution to your problem, you need to accommodate his dick in the way it works. That means if he takes a full hour of jackrabbiting to come and you only enjoy a half hour of jackrabbiting at most, he jackrabbits himself. He masturbates himself for the first half hour. He gets himself close. He gets himself – he edges himself. He gets himself primed and ready and near the edge of the falls and then you guys have intercourse. Then he does the last half hour in you. First half hour outside of you, last half hour in you or last 20 minutes or 15 minutes or however long you enjoy it. That's what you do. But he gets himself almost all the way there. He gets himself at least halfway there before you guys have intercourse and that's a way to accommodate – your completely reasonable and understandable aversion to having your pussy pounded away at for 45 extra minutes after you've come and how his dick works. You accommodate how his dick actually works. He brings himself close and then you guys have intercourse. Rather than you guys have intercourse, you get off and then he keeps going and going and going until he gets off. That's a reasonable workaround and it works and you should do it. And you can try the retraining his dick. But it might be more efficient and might lead to two more happy partners if you just rejigger your routine. Hi, Dan. I was wondering if you could weigh in on something that I've seen that's popular with teenagers on Tumblr. Uh, it's the idea of the orientation demisexuality or the thought that you can only be sexually attracted to someone once you have developed deep emotional bonds. Uh, to me, this seems like a description of just how you prefer to build interpersonal relationships. Uh, and it seems like a nice way to make yourself sound like a super special snowflake and take away a bit from the plight of people whose orientations actually are oppressed. Uh, I also was wondering uh, if you thought this is a valid thought or sexuality. Uh, so, yeah, if you could weigh in, I'd love to hear what you think. I kind of think it's bullshit, but... Am I out of line? It seems like a way to do a lot of slut-shaming. I uh, can only be attracted to people who I have a deep emotional bond with, unlike those slutty slut-sluts that don't. Uh, so I do think that there's some harm in promoting this as an orientation. I just read this at the Asexuality Archive, which is at asexualityarchive.com. Just a fact sheet, Q&A, the Q. I've heard something about uh, the Ace Umbrella. What's that about? The response, the answer, there's a gray area between asexuality and non-asexuality. Some people known as gray sexuals experience sexual attraction infrequently or not very strongly or possibly aren't quite sure whether or not what they experience as sexual attraction. One subtype of gray sexuals known as demisexuals can experience sexual attraction only after developing a close emotional bond with someone. Who am I to tell the demisexuals that their experience of their own sexualities are invalid or some sort of slut-shaming ruse? There are probably people out there who for whatever reason can't be attracted to somebody unless they're really emotionally involved. They must exist because there they are under the asexuality umbrella out of the rain. 
that you're encountering a lot of this from teenagers on Tumblr. This is not to delegitimize the experience or the validity of demisexuality for others. But I know that when I was a teenager, particularly in the face of uh, the growing AIDS epidemic, that sex was really kind of scary and to have an excuse to sort of step aside and instead of saying I don't want to have sex, which is kind of how I felt uh, for a while, I would say I was too in love with my ex-boyfriend to be intimate with anyone else because I was too embarrassed just to say that I was afraid. That could be going on with some of these teenagers on Tumblr. You know, There's a lot of pressure. Uh, teenagers are under to hook up. Boys, they have to be studs. Girls, they have to be just the right amount of desired and active to be hot and in play but not too much because then you're going to get slut shamed. But if you can sort of adopt for yourself a label that says, you know what? I can't participate in this sort of hookup culture uh, that all of my peers are because I don't function the same way sexually as my peers. I have to be really into somebody. Kind of give somebody who's nervous about their sexual initiation or nervous about what they've seen some of their other friends go through or experience a dodge. It gives them an out that allows them to be sexual, to say I have a sexuality. I do want to have sex with and gives them a reason not to participate in the like crazy drinking fast lane horseshit that might be going on around them in their high schools or at college. And so they say, I can only be with somebody that I am emotionally attracted to, that for, with whom I have formed this emotional bond. So there may be some people out there who are not so much engaged in kind of reverse double backflip slut shaming of other people, but finding a way out of high-pressure sexual situations where they don't have to engage in slut-shaming, where they're not saying what you're doing is wrong. What they're saying is what you're doing doesn't work for me when they say that they're demisexual. And I think, you know, I think that's just fine. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 29-year-old straight guy living in the Northeast, and I have a question I never thought I'd be lucky enough to have to ask. Um, my girlfriend and I, after a couple sessions of talking about our fantasies, we realize we both really like the idea of having same-room sex with another couple. We both are turned on by watching and being watched. Um, she's comfortable with this happening at her place as long as we meet up with the other couple somewhere first and make sure we all click and all that. I'm comfortable with this, too. Um, my question is one of etiquette. After we've you know, all had our fun, how do we kick them out without making them feel like we're kicking them out. Like we don't, you know, we don't want to be rude, especially if it goes well and we want to meet up with them again. Uh, never done this before and we wouldn't feel comfortable with anyone staying the night. Uh, any advice you have would be much appreciated. No one wants to be thrown out or feel discarded after they've been intimate with somebody. If they've had sex with somebody, no one wants to feel like the dirty t-shirt being tossed across the room into the hamper. And they won't feel like that if you're just clear in advance of this hookup that you guys can totally host the sex party that you'd like to have. They're really hot. But because you don't have the room or you don't have the guest room or your king-size bed won't accommodate four or you have shit to do early in the morning that you can't host them overnight. And you just put that out there. Then they'll know that when it's over is time to go and they'll probably want to go. So don't assume that this other pair that you're inviting over are just dying to see you guys – bleary-eyed and stanky-mouthed in the morning? Probably not. They'll probably be happy to go. They probably will assume that they're going. But if any anxieties about them assuming that they're staying, just make it clear at the get-go without being creepy or weird about it, without acting like 
you know, you, I know you guys are going to want to stick around, but you can't. Just don't be like that. Like, yeah, you guys can totally come over. I'm really sorry, though. We don't have the space uh, or the time, if it's a time constraint, to put you guys up. But we totally have the space to fuck you guys. And then if they show up, if they come over, they know. They know. They know they can't stay. Problem solved because you used your words. Hi, Dan. I have a question about talking to a younger cousin about family planning. She's 22, marrying a 19-year-old that she's been seeing for a year or two. They're both in junior college and totally broke. Her family is very religious, which is very different from mine, and I'm guessing the fiancé is too. So I'm not sure what branch of religion, maybe Baptist, but the kind where there are seven kids because my aunt wanted to bring as many gifts from God into the world as possible, and all the kids were homeschooled on and off with books like Math with God. So my point is that I doubt that my cousin has ever gotten a proper education about birth control and sex for pleasure, and it occurred to me that even though we aren't very close, I might be in the best position to do it since I'm the only older cousin. I'm just a couple years older and not married, so that might freak her religious sensibilities out, but I think I'm the only relative that would broach the subject. But I don't know how to approach this. I live in another state, so my only chance to do it in person would be to corner her the day before or day of her wedding. Is that terrible timing? Also, where would I start? Like, hey, babies are really expensive and you two barely know each other. So if you want to wait until you finish your education and have jobs, there are methods for family planning. I don't know where to begin. And maybe I'm just meddling, but it's one thing to know all about birth control and decide not to use it and another to be uneducated. And I just want to plant the idea that family planning might be a good idea right now and there are tools to help with that. Do you think I should try to do this and how? And if I can't or shouldn't corner her at the wedding, do you have any other suggestions? Here's what I would do if I were you. I would go buy a few sex manuals, go buy a few books, put them in a lovely box with some lovely tissue and wrap them and put them on the gift table for her. And if you want to, you can include a card that says this is from your cousin. Uh, If you have any questions or you want to have somebody to talk to because I don't know if you've ever had anybody you could confide in about sex or birth control or boys or anything else, here's my email. Here's my phone number. Happy to chat anytime. And then drop it rather than have some awkward face-to-face conversation on her wedding day about a topic that might set her off and might set her mother off and might set everybody else at the wedding off. Little time bomb, little gift, a little box of books, sex manuals and some information, some pamphlets from Planned Parenthood about birth control, maybe a letter from you about the importance of family planning early, particularly if she's still in school and tell her that you're happy to be her confidant if she wants to chat with you or happy never to talk with her about it ever again if she chooses not to talk with you about it and then let it go because really it's not your business. And I appreciate the impulse. So I think you are doing the right thing by reaching out to her, but reach out to her in this way where it'll happen later. Hopefully her mother won't be there with her helping her open her gifts as sometimes happens. But if she is and there's a big shit storm, maybe it's a shit storm in that moment that needs to happen. And I've been instructed by the producers of the Savage Lovecast to mention also that the gift of the Savage Lovecast can be presented to your cousin privately via email for information about gifting the Savage Lovecast to a cousin who was raised in a sexually conservative environment by parents who kept them ignorant of human sexuality and birth control and sexual safety. Just go to savagelovecast.com and when you buy a season, click on the bar that says gift. So speaking of uh, lack of any basic sex education and no info about how genitals work and how bodies work, uh, I want to bring in a, a guest, Sophia Wallace. She's a conceptual artist originally from Seattle but she lives and works in New York City. 
She shows internationally, and her latest work is an epic project that maybe you've read about online. There's been a lot of buzz about it. It's kind of gone viral. It's called Cliteracy, and it is amazing. And if you haven't heard about it yet, you need to Google Cliteracy as soon as you're done listening to this conversation. That's C-L-I-T-E-R-A-C-Y. Joining us by phone, uh, Sophia, thanks for jumping on the line with us. My pleasure, Dan. I'm so happy to talk to you, finally. So, tell us about cliteracy. Oh, cliteracy. I mean, there's so much to say. Um, I think I've been living in the eye of the clit storm for the last two years, ever since I started the project. But it's really about the basic, fundamental sort of incompetence about the clit that is so pervasive worldwide, um, just like a global problem with illiteracy. Um, and so sharing a lot of information about the clit, like basic anatomy, how it works, what to do with it, but also um, revealing this sort of false frame of this idea of the phallus versus the lack, the object versus the non-object, mm-hmm. um, which causes everyone so much pain and not just women. And I think there's um, the current state that we live in, really like reproductive sex is fetishized. And everyone who's having sex for pleasure is pathologized. And that's actually the majority of us. Most of the sex that most people have most of the time is for pleasure, including people who fetishize procreation. I assume that Rick Santorum and his wife have had sex more than seven times. They have seven kids to show for all the sex they've had. But they've had sex more than seven times. Not that we want any mental images there burdening us. I love what you said, though, about this battle between the phallus and this negative space that – that mm-hmm. there's there's nothing on the female side. There's just this right. empty sort of space that is to be filled with the yes. penis, but there's nothing pushing back against it, and that's just not true. Right, exactly. There's just this void that can only be activated by the penis, and it loses its value the more the penis enters it, and it's only um, agency is really through reproduction. What don't people know about the clitoris that they're surprised to learn about through your project? A- yeah, I mean, first of all, the clit is this incredible organ that's actually similar in scale to the penis. I mean, which nobody knows about. Like, the, the actual anatomy of the clit has been discovered by various people, but none of those discoveries have actually been adopted. So, I mean, we might as well not have discovered the clit at all. Um, it's a very exciting, interesting, dynamic organ that looks like nothing else. Uh, it also gets erections similar to the penis. It has a similar amount of erectile tissue. Um, there's 8,000 nerves on the tip of the clit. And the tip of the clit, uh, the tip of the clit is what people think of when you say clit. They're just talking about the glands. Exactly. There's all this clitoral exactly. tissue, the, these erectile mm-hmm. chambers that anchor the exposed mm-hmm. part of the clit is to the body. But most mm-hmm. of a woman's clitoral tissues are internal, not the exposed yes. head. Yep, and, that's perfectly correct. And the number and the number of women I talk to about this who don't know is mm-hmm. staggering. It's staggering. It's ter- I mean, it's kind of terrifying. The number of women who come to me and say, you know, shyly and blush and say, you know, actually I can only orgasm if I stimulate my foot when I'm having sex or have to use a vibrator and they're so embarrassed. I'm like, no, you're actually in the majority because that's where the 8,000 nerves are right there. So it's just a logical thing. You don't drive the car by pressing the brakes, you press the gas. And um, and the so, and the clitoris is not a joy buzzer at the top of the vaginal canal, as I actually wrote in my column once before I knew anything about I, clitoris. So prophetically, I know it's so amazing. Um, and I would say also another thing that I realized through doing this project, because I actually was learning my whole, my, you know, myself the whole time, was that the word vagina is really a misnomer. I mean, it's a word. It's used by everybody, and it's used to represent female genitals. It really, it, it literally is a Latin word that means sheath for a sword. And it literally technically only includes the opening. 
so every time women say my vagina, my vagina, when they're talking about the, like the politics of, of reproduction or they're talking about their genital system, they're literally reducing their whole system to just being a whole. And that's really terrifying. And that just reveals so much about the language that we've sort of accepted very naively, I would argue, as being somehow neutral when it's anything but neutral and very much has an agenda. So what would you call all that lady business down well, there? Well, it's called, yes, yeah, I mean, the, the, the term for everything, if you want to include the clit, is vulva. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we're talking about sex and women, we should just be like, clit, 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 clit. You know what I mean? Penis clit, penis clit. And then everything else is like, cool, you know, you have your balls, you know, you've got your... Can I, wait, wait, can I, can I speak up for the penis people? Please don't call it a penis. Yeah. <laughs> clit sounds so sort of like, you know, it's one syllable, it's got that hard C, okay, the hard dick. T. Clit, dick. Clit, dick. Clits and cocks, clits and cocks. <laughs> okay, or clits and cocks, you can do that. I'm cool with all of that. Because penis sounds like something you want to go see a dermatologist to have burned off your body. Oh, my God, I've got a penis. Mm-hmm. I need to go get that burned off my body. But a bit of cock okay. or a dick, that sounds like something fun that you want to hang out to. I guess you're calling me out for not having done a lot of like oral sex with men. Um, and <laughs> I, or, or, no, no, no. I'm not calling uh, sex or erotic uh, language. Yeah, I'm, totally. not, I'm not calling you out for that. And I'm happy to pick up the slack. <laughs> Whatever you're not doing oral sex with That's men-wise, cool. I will take care of. Nice. We can have like a good tag team. But yeah, so basically, I mean, I think that the clit needs to be a subject. The clit needs to be uh, a part of the conversation about sex and sexuality. I mean, all the time, everywhere. And, you know, there is this sort of really interesting paradox of like, on the one hand, that female bodies are used as sort of like the de facto representation of sexuality. And you think of the history of like, female nudes in painting or in sculpture, or you think of like, um, um, the way that women are used in advertising, right? But then the fact that, like, so many women, straight women, um, are having really bad sex um, all the time. Like, they're having very active sex lives, and they're just basically not having orgasms, as you know way better than I do, probably. Um, It's just a tragedy. And, you know, like, so many other problems in the world which are very difficult to solve. You know, I'm thinking about, like, the proliferation of, like, nuclear warheads or degradation of the environment. I mean, illiteracy can be solved really easily, you know? And if you don't have to go out and buy a bunch of things, you don't have to, like, hire someone to help you so much. I mean, you just need a little bit of information, good partner, um, you know, know your own body. Like, first discover it yourself and then work with, like, a loving partner or, like, a really good friend, whatever, you know? Um, and, and it's, like, solved. Right. And what would that be like, you know? So the the problem though for a lot of people with clits, uh besides just negating women's experiences or not prioritizing women's pleasure, it is the only organ of the body uh, of anybody, body's body, male or female that exists exclusively to provide sexual pleasure. It mm-hmm. plays no role in reproduction. Uh you know, mm-hmm. a woman's orgasm it's a nice and lovely thing. It's not a necessary thing. In the same way that a man's orgasm is to reproduction. And I think that mm. has undergirded a lot of the discomfort with talking about clits is you're literally – it mm-hmm. puts it right in front of you what sex is for. Sex is for pleasure. We have mm-hmm. a thousand sexual contacts, our species, for every one live birth. Sex is mostly not about babies. It is about intimacy and connection and pleasure and cementing bonds uh, and creating a kind of social lubricant. It's all that. And the clit Mm -hmm. screams that. And the culture is in denial about that. The culture pretends Mm -hmm. that sex is about procreation. So, of course, the clit gets written out of human sexuality because the clit says pleasure is what the point. Pleasure is what it's about. And Mm -hmm. we can't have that. Yeah. And I I would say, you know, just building upon that, I think – 
anyone who tries to tell me that this project is like just for women, um, I say no. Like the clit is a symbol of body sovereignty and freedom for everybody. You know, access for pleasure in one's own body and and the right to have pleasure as part of your fundamental humanity, not because sex in and of itself is like the sole or most important subject, but but rather that the pathologization of one's sexuality, particularly the way it's targeted at queers, at women, at sex workers, at the incarcerated, and so on, like, that's the issue. And the fact that we can't even talk about it, I mean, I think it's just so brilliant that talking about our bodies and our sexuality has been turned into this, like, awful taboo um, that can, you can even be banned, you know, from even talking about your body or talking about your sex- sexuality. is a very effective tool in silencing um, not just silencing, but, you know, effectively, like, subjugating people's political rights. And so I'm constantly trying to sort of situate literacy within a political framework of citizenship and say, this isn't just, um, this isn't about sex positivity, though I'm happy that people are they're taking that away and no one should feel ashamed about their body, but this is about, like, not cleaning off certain people's bodies from humanity because of their sexual organs mm-hmm. or the fact that they are seeking pleasure themselves like that's their birthright and that's part of a, of a human right that can't be taken away so we've been talking about kind of the concepts and uh, we're talking about the clit itself but also the concept behind the the clitoracy project but what will someone see if they come to a clitoracy event what is going to be in front of them mm, so like right now for example um they would see a 35 foot billboard that says democracy without clitoracy fallacy um <laughs> and i you know i'm <laughs> Really into working, you know, the clit always has to be in an epic scale. I mean, because I think that we're so used to with things, dealing with female genitals or the female body in general, we always get like this this new literal object that's usually splayed open, or at minimum, it's just completely nude. And it's like, no, actually having a clit is really just like a feeling in the body of, of um, it's not something that you need to actually see. It's more about the, 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 the ephemeral experience of like being in one's body and feeling that amazing feeling. And um, I really, so I've always worked with text and large scale. Mm-hmm. I have like a large scale installation that's like 10 by 13 feet and a six foot neon thesis of clitoracy and there's literally 100 laws of clitoracy. I'm also working in sculpture. So, so I'm making three-dimensional anatomically correct massive clip sculptures, which are really beautiful. Well, I know what I'm getting Terry for Christmas now. <laughs> awesome. And then also street art. So I've been doing a lot of anonymous street art with clitoracy and that's around. Well, where, um, where can people go online to learn more about the clitoracy project? If they just go to my website, sophiawallace.com, um, they can see um, a lot about the work. They can even buy a solid gold t-shirt you know, which is also really profound to just see someone, man, woman, trans or cis, just rocking this this shirt that says clit, which, I mean, we never see the clit out anywhere, right? And we never see it without some sort of nudity or sex maybe implied. And it's just like, this is a subject, this exists, like, deal with it, you know, and it's gold and it's beautiful and solid. And so that's been really cool to have these shirts being sent, like, people ordering them from all over the world and wearing them and sort of like, what's the effect of that? I would so wear that shirt at college speaking events. Absolutely. And Christmas morning, I'd totally wear that shirt. I feel like you were a little bit like my, my Clint Godfather all these years like, <laughs> by, by making that piece. So, I mean, seriously. So, um, so it would be my honor. I've never been anyone's Clint Godfather before, but <laughs> it, it is an honor and I accept the position. And I renounce Satan and all of his phallic works and embrace my role awesome. as Clint Godfather. 
Sophia Wallace. She's a conceptual artist originally from Seattle where we taped the podcast, but she works in New York City, shows internationally. Her latest work is an epic project called Cliteracy. Go to SophiaWallace.com to learn more about it. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Sophia. Thank you so much, Dan. Hello, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I have a question because my boyfriend and I have been together three and a half years. I'm 24 years old, and everything's really great in our relationship. Our sex life is really great. My question is, is that is it wrong for me to sometimes think in our relationship that I'm missing out on my youth by being in a long-term relationship. I love him and wouldn't trade my boyfriend for the world. He's my best friend, and I couldn't imagine my life without him. But every once in a while, I get that itch, you know, that itch where I think about, you know, how I see all these girls around me going out and partying and going out and having a good time and being free and being themselves. And every once in a while, I miss that. Is that bad? Does that mean that there's something that I'm not getting in this relationship? I think at my age that that should be normal, but I just want to be sure that that's not like a red flag or a warning sign that one day I'm just going to wake up and be like, I want to go out and party and be single and I don't want to be with my boyfriend anymore. Everything I needed to know about life I learned from Stephen Sondheim musicals. There's a moment in Company, which is a musical about all these crazy married people, all these couples, um, and their one single friend, Bobby. And there's this moment where Bobby turns to one of the married men and asks him, are you ever sorry you got married? And the response is this really beautiful kind of touching and if you're in a long-term relationship, gutting song uh, that begins, you're always sorry that you got married. You're always sorry and you're always grateful. And so this ambivalence that the, the, the song in company, which is just so beautiful and so brilliant, acknowledges is true in every long-term relationship. There are choices and experiences you won't have because you're here with this person. You've made this choice and you're having these experiences and that represents some loss and sometimes you grieve for those other experiences, other people you could have been with, other things that could have happened to you and then you're grateful for all the good things and all the wonderful things that this person that you're with also brings into your life. It compensates. Hopefully it compensates – out of all proportion for whatever losses you anticipate or imagine that being with this person represents. So there's nothing about this feeling that you're having right now. Uh, you know, you're only 24. You've been together for three and a half or four years since you were very young. There's nothing about this feeling that you're having that points to some fatal flaw in this relationship or that it is destined to fail. We're in. Not necessarily. I have those feelings. I assume Terry does. We don't talk about it. Everybody has those feelings of – you know, what could have been in the grass is always greener in those moments. And then you have wonderful oxy, natural oxy moments with the person you're with and you couldn't imagine not being with that person, right? That said, you said some things in kind of a disturbing way that, that made me worry for you and your relationship and, and what your relationship means and how you two define it and how you live your relationship with each other. When you say you see your girlfriends being free and being themselves – and you contrast that implicitly with yourself and I think – so you're not free in your relationship and you're not being yourself. That's troubling. You need to be you and you need to be free and you need to be yourself even in your relationship. And if what you need to be free in your relationship at this time is a little more latitude, you know, if you guys – if you never get to go out with the girls, even if you're with this guy, even if you're partnered, if you never get to go out on the town and just – kick back and be alone and be perceived as an individual and be perceived perhaps 
erroneously as an individual who might be available and attract some attention, get some sort of ego boost even if you're not getting anything else and not looking for anything else, that's a problem. You're young. You should be out every once in a while. You should be out on your own and so should he every once in a while. And by every once in a while, I don't mean once a year. I mean a couple of times a month, if not more. You don't want to spend all your time together if indeed that is the mistake that you are making, if that's what you're doing. Because then you will end the relationship. The relationship will self-sabotage. It will self-destruct at a certain point because at a certain point you're going to go, I can be with you or I can have fun but I can't be with you and have fun. Or I can be with you but that means being with you only all the time and I'm never allowed to have any experiences on my own. I'm never allowed to have any adventures on my own. I'm not allowed to be perceived as an individual in the world ever. And that frustration will end the relationship. You will end up sabotaging the relationship or pulling the plug because you got to be free. And you can be free and monogamous and free. You can be free in the context of a monogamous closed relationship. You really can. But there's got to be some allowance for it. So right now, if you're in this relationship 3.5 years and you're only 24 and you're feeling unfree and you're feeling not yourself, if you're looking at what your friends are able to do and thinking, I want to do that, but I can't because I'm with him and it's not allowed for either of us, then there's a problem. You need to renegotiate the terms of your relationship and what's permissible. You need to carve out some time for yourself and some time alone with your friends away from your boyfriend. So even if you aren't looking for anyone else to get with, you're still running around. You're still having some fun. You're still kicking it up, even if you're not hooking it up. Hi, Dan and Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm calling from a hotel room in beautiful Mormon, Utah. And I've just been talking with my best friend, and we've discovered that her girlfriend used to, ex-girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, used to insist that they wear gloves, latex gloves, anytime they finger banged. And that, to me, sounds on the border of ridiculous, assuming that you both have relatively short nails and decent personal hygiene and washing your hands. So I guess my question is, is this a thing? What sort of horror stories could come from a person contracting some sort of hand-based AIDS or herpes or other STI? And how could this much younger girl have gotten into her mind that you needed hand condoms in order to have lesbian sex. Lena Crandall is a nurse practitioner who works in a sexual health clinic in Portland that we shall not name. Lena, thanks for jumping on the phone with us. Are there any hand-to-vag transmissible STIs out there that people need to be worried about? Well, you know, it's a good question. I think for the most part, it's a pretty safe practice and... There are very, very few infections that you could get from hand to vagina. Um, I was thinking about the question, and really the only things that came to mind to me at all were if someone, say, had oral herpes, type type 1, HSV-1 on the mouth, and, you know, got their hands on the cold sores, rubbed it in the cold sores, and then immediately then to proceed to finger bang after that, and there was a lot of fluid, you know, viruses need need fluid and cells to survive. So if there was a lot of fluid there, you could, I guess, pass HSV-1 onto someone's genitals that way. So basically, um, basically the only concern you can think of is somebody has herpes sores on their mouth and they are vigorously rubbing them the moment before they start finger banging you, then you have a concern. 
Yes, and then, of course, there's also syphilis can cause a body rash that could occur on the hands, but really the chances of that are very, very slim, and that's not even the most contagious time during a syphilis infection. It's what's called the secondary phase, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, a lot of people don't even have that phase, so that's the only other thing I could think of, and both of those seem like really unlikely scenarios. And the only one I can think of, which seems uh, likelier, but the gloves won't help you is if somebody is touching herself and then immediately moves her hand from her vag to your vag, all sorts of things could be carried along. You get gonorrhea that way. You get all sorts of things that way. But wearing gloves, if she touches herself wearing gloves and then touches you with the same glove, you have the same problem. Exactly. I think you're dead on. Um, I agree completely. You know, I think that your caller was really accurate when she talked about the personal hygiene and the short nails Mm -hmm. because, that's really the the main issue I could think of is the nails causing some micro tears inside the vagina. And then if you're tearing on the inside, you're going to be much more likely to get any infection. But this we would call, we would classify this as perhaps paranoia slash overabundance of caution. Unless, you know, unless one of the partners was uh, positive for HIV, then um, I would agree, yes, overly precautious. Wait, wait, you you think that HIV could be an issue for somebody who's just finger banging? I think that, yeah, I think that um, if someone is HIV positive and their partner is not and they're trying to take all the precautions necessary to not infect the other person, then because of the tearing that we talked about in the nails, mm-hmm. that it would be a good idea to use gloves in but that But then the, the person who, whose nails was doing the tearing would also have to be bleeding. Correct? Uh, let me think. Yes. So we're we're saying if the person getting the finger banging is has HIV. No, no I okay. And, if the, the person doing the finger banging has HIV and they cause micro tears, yeah. they're not going to transmit the virus unless they are also bleeding or their fingers are ejaculating. And their fingers can ejaculate, so we can eliminate that risk. So we're only talking about the potential then if there's bleeding. It it, it just seems like a, a yeah. reach. It's just the way some people say that. Yes, it's theoretically possible that HIV could be transmitted during deep kissing if you're got, if right. you've got a bloody right. mouth with open sores and they've got a bloody mouth with open sores and one of you is HIV positive. In which case, you know, you're probably not going to be kissing two people with bloody mouths and open sores. You're probably going to be <laughs> not thinking about it at that moment. Yeah, it's theoretically possible for French kissing to pass HIV, but there's no evidence that it's ever happened. And I would say this is also a case of, yeah, I guess, you know, I'll concede to you, Lena, theoretically possible. Is there anything in the medical yeah, literature I, about it ever having happened? Um, not that I know of. I, you, you make a good point. I think um, as, especially if it was just finger banging and it was going to end at that, you know, if it was going to turn into um, finger banging followed by oral sex or, or other types of sex, then maybe things might be a little different, but. I think you're right. Your finger, the nails aren't going to be bleeding. Good point. <laughs> Hopefully not, unless you've got cracked and drying hands, in which case. Put the gloves on. Put the case. gloves on. <laughs> Lita Crandall, she's a nurse practitioner uh, who works at a sexual health clinic in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old straight male, and I am testing well, confessing, I guess, to be uh, a CPOS, uh, cheating piece of shit. I have also just been uh, just a man whore for uh, a number of years, uh, coming out of a really uh, oppressive 
very religious upbringing. I was also uh, a really ugly duckling. I lost a bunch of weight uh, when I left home, and, you know, I kind of lost my faith for that. So, you know, like all these things kind of really combined to uh, just create this situation in my life where uh, I was getting a lot of female attention that I'd never gotten before. And fast forward a few years, I've had, uh, you know, several unsuccessful relationships. Whenever I date someone, a lot of times I will cheat on them uh, just out of boredom or, you know, I kind of get a thrill out of it a little bit. As I'm getting older now, I've been able to uh, slow down and kind of realize how hurt people sometimes, but because sexuality was so repressed growing up, it's really easy for me to uh, just cover it up, you know, pretend it didn't happen. And I've cheated on, I guess, about uh, three or four girls who were formal girlfriends, and, um, you know, none of them really know about it. And, you know, it's just really easy for me to... Uh, kind of wrap that up inside of myself, and uh, I'm in a relationship with a really lovely girl now. I've been dating for about six months, and my old habits resurfaced. Uh, I saw an ex-girlfriend at a bar, uh, went home with her, you know, slept with her. This was uh, fairly early on in my current relationship, and I actually did feel really bad, pretty disgusted with myself this time, and since then I've been able to be faithful. But, you know, I still really just want to sleep with other people all the time. And a lot of times I think, you know, I could be in a, an open relationship or, you know, maybe I should be more upfront with my desire to not be completely monogamous with people I enter into relationships, relationships with. But um, I don't I think, you know, the, the ugly duckling thing has kind of made me uh, devalue myself to some degree. And I kind of feel like, you know, I don't have the social and uh, romantic capital to really trade this open relationship for. Uh, and I guess that's really, you know, not the right uh, frame of mind to be in when approaching this open relationship that I want. But I guess uh, what can I do to take steps towards being in the type of open relationship that I really want for myself while not... Uh, hurting my girlfriend's feelings, and uh, this relationship is ending. We're going our separate ways because of uh, geographic distance. And in the future, you know, how, what can I do to really be faithful? And um, you know, if I absolutely have to sleep with someone else, not do so in a secretive, you know, hidden, forbidden kind of way that you know really would hurt the other person uh, if they were to find out. Well, you are all over the map. You know, you you, you wrap up your very long and, and, you know, I feel your pain, heartfelt call with, you know, how do I turn the relationship I'm in now into the open relationship that I want? But actually that's moot because this relationship is ending because we're going our separate ways. Uh, so what I want is an open relationship ultimately. But what can I do to be faithful in my next relationship? Uh, your next relationship should be an open relationship because an open relationship is what you want. Um, you're kind of articulate about it. You don't want to be – sexually exclusive with anyone and you're not good at it and you're sick of lying about what you're capable of or what you're incapable of. So stop lying. And when you meet a girl and you're going to go out on some dates, that early stage where you establish whether you're on the same page sexually, uh, throw that out there. You can even say, you know, I've never really been very good at monogamy and I don't think that I should make monogamous commitments because I've tended to violate them and ultimately what I think I need to be with, the kind of person I need to be with is somebody who doesn't believe that 
monogamous behavior is the sole criteria for a successful relationship or is the only measurement of someone's love and commitment because I'm not any good at that and I don't want to keep lying and cheating. I want an honest relationship, an honest, open relationship. And stop psychoanalyzing yourself. Ugly duckling, repressive upbringing, you're just making excuses really. There are plenty of guys out there who had – you know, secular upbringings, a lot of sex positive messages from mom and dad or mom and mom and dad and dad and weren't ugly ducklings at all who are behaving the exact same way that you're behaving. You're just pointing back into your childhood to justify the sort of shitty things you're doing to women now as if you're the victim here because you were the ugly duckling. You're the victim here as you cheat on girls because you were – had shitty parents who said shitty things to you about sex. You're the real victim here as you lie and mislead and misrepresent yourself to the women that you're dating. But you're the real victim. Bullshit. Stop it. Ugly duckling, big man on campus, whatever the fuck you were in high school, let it go. All you have to think about is going forward and what you know about yourself, what you've learned about yourself in the handful of relationships that you've had since coming into your full sexuality, right? And what you know about yourself, what you've learned is that you can't do this monogamy thing. And so you should stop telling people that you will do it or stop letting women assume that you are doing it. Just be very clear that you're not interested in a monogamous relationship. There are women out there who are not interested in monogamous relationships either. You should partner with one and you will make each other very happy. But if you continue to partner with women who want their boyfriends to be faithful to them, you're going to make them miserable and you're going to feel like what you describe yourself as the top of your call, a cheating piece of shit. You don't have to feel that way and you won't feel that way if you start telling the truth about yourself to your potential partners and you get in a relationship with someone who doesn't want monogamy as you don't. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a longtime listener and I love you. I'm a 23-year-old girl in Florida and I've been with my boyfriend for a year and it's great. We have great sex. Everything's really amazing. But we're both in school right now and we kind of just started and uh, I don't know, he's having some sort of existential crisis. He is an English major, so you can imagine. And I don't really know what to do. For a while it was okay, but now it's just that he's questioning everything around him, which, you know, I mean, I want to encourage it, but it's turning into complaints and and it almost is coming off as pretentious, which I never imagined that he would be the kind of guy that I would ever have to say that about. And now it's kind of starting to affect our sex life as far as, like, he's too stuck in his head, like, asking the world questions to calm down and, like, fuck me. So, I don't know. I just started having a few issues about it and getting stuck in my head because of it, and I thought you might have some advice. Holy fucking English major. Ugh. We all know what those English majors are like. Oh, we can imagine. I imagine. I feel your pain dating the English major. Uh, I love that you say that your relationship is great. We have great sex. Everything is really amazing. And then you go on from there to describe that you're, you know, a situation where your sex life is basically collapsing and that your boyfriend has because he's taken a couple of 101 English classes, turned into a towering, self-conscious dick. And how is that great? Things sound like they're not great. Things sound like 
the wheels are coming off. And I don't know what his problem is, what sort of existential crisis he's having. Um, doesn't sound like you know either. It doesn't sound like you much care really either. So I think you need to say to your boyfriend, like I'm done with this. Find some arty farty friends to sit up with late at night in a cafe and have your existential drama. I want a boyfriend. I want the boyfriend that I had before whoever said whatever to you in whatever class that that set you off like this. Oh, I support your intellectual journey and you getting your education. But I need you to still be able to wrestle with these big questions and want to fuck me. And if you can't reconcile those two not at all contradictory impulses, the desire to think the big thoughts, to wrestle with the big questions and the desire to put your hard dick in my pussy, then it's over. Because if you can't do both and I think you should do some of that questioning shit with people who give a fuck about those questions and save the other stuff for me, if you can't do both, uh, our relationship ain't so great anymore and it won't be around for much longer either. Hey there, my name is Andrew and uh, I have had a boyfriend um, that I've been living in the city with him since about January. Um, and it's now November, and we have probably had sex five times, last time being in June. And I uh, I brought up my concerns with him last week about not, sorry, about uh, things not really happening. And uh, I suggested an open relationship. Um, and I said that, you know, if, you know, of course, I would, I would fulfill my sexual needs with you if I could, but... Um, I can't because there's always something going on. And uh, basically, he just kind of gave me the timeline of events. He was on anxiety meds, uh, which were like sucking with his dick. And then I complained, and then he got off the anxiety meds. But then he had some issue with his landlord, and that was causing him stress. So he needed to deal with that. And then he had, um, I don't know, like winter came along. He was like, oh, man, I've got like seasonal affective disorder or something. Then he went out and got a UV lamp to help deal with that. And he said that his mood's improved and stuff. But I don't know. We like we like kind of fooled around last week, but that's like I don't know. It's it's not enough for me. It's not enough for me. And I don't know how to say to him like you know what's uh, what's going on. What's going on? Why can't we do this? Anxiety medications, seasonal affective disorder. These are things where a good partner, a loving partner, is told you kind of have to suck it up, and you know you don't want your partner to be suicidally depressed and if the antidepressant meds uh, tank their libido for a while, that's something you're going to have to roll with because you shouldn't be that selfish and your partner's health and survival certainly is more important than your orgasms. But the fact that it's always something, oh, I'm on anxiety meds, oh, I have seasonal affective disorder, I need a lamp and once I have a lamp, maybe then I want to fuck you. Oh, I have stress. Oh, there's stress. I mean, there's stress with my landlord, and so I just can't fuck you. That it's always something is really concerning. Maybe he's not attracted to you sexually. Maybe he's one of those people with a tragically low libido. Tragic in this instance, where there's this huge disconnect or mismatched problem. Um, and he just won't admit that rather than saying I'm the kind of person who only wants to have sex once or twice a year for fear that you'll break up with him. He just trots out a litany of kind of leveragey excuses that – where he's leveraging your basic and fundamental goodness and decency and concern for him against your own legitimate desire to be sexually active with your sexually exclusive sex partner. 
So I think you need to march into him and you need to say, look, I, I, if you are in the I love you stage, which you don't say that you are, you also don't say this is the greatest relationship you've ever been in and everything's perfect and you love him and it's wonderful except but – which is a nice change of pace because most people who call in with the problem that you describe first tell me how wonderful everything is before they get to this. Um, but if you do love him and you want to be there with him and if you could have a boyfriend sort of love relationship with someone with whom you didn't have sex – Often or even at all and you were content to get your sexual needs met elsewhere and your emotional needs met at home with him, you could do that. There's plenty of people out there who have those kinds of relationships where their primary partner, their, their lover, the person that they live with is not the person that they're that sexually active with or that they're rarely sexually active with. But you have to get him to sign off on that. You need to go to him and say, clearly this isn't a problem that is, will be solved. In the short run. So here's the solution in the short run. I am not going to go without sex forever or indefinitely. So I'm going to do what I need to do. I need to do. I'm going to get my needs met. I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be careful. I'm going to be considerate of your feelings. But you know, sex. I'm going to have it with someone. I'd like to have it with you, but you can't or won't have it with me. So I'm going to have it with someone else, and hopefully, still have what we have with each other. Because whatever the relationship that you're in right now, whatever is working and good about it, it's working and good in the absence of sexual activity. So you can continue to have all of that, all the good with him and sex with others. But going without sex is going to ruin the good with him eventually. So just lay it all out in front of him and see what he says. And if he won't sign off on it, dump the motherfucker already. It's over. Sexual compatibility is important. It is basic. It is fundamental, particularly in a sexually exclusive relationship. And if the sex isn't working, the relationship at this stage, this early on, isn't working and you need to pull the plug. Hi, Dan. I was just listening to episode 370 and I had to turn it off to call in. I heard you call the 18-year-old girl who is engaged. You told her to break it off. You talked about all the data points that are going to call in. And I'm a data point. I was engaged at 18. I was married at 21. Monogamy was important to me. Loyalty was important to me. All of that identity stuff was important. And then I was divorced at 26. It was because it was sexual incompatibility. It was a rough, almost 10 years of my life. I wish I could get it back. And what I would tell your caller is absolutely break it off. If this is the right guy for you, he'll still be the right guy at 24 or 26 or 28. In the meantime, you don't want to be divorced in your late 20s because it sucks. Hey, Dan. I'm calling about uh, episode 370, the woman who lost 140 pounds and then was no longer able to orgasm from plural stimulation. Uh, so I love the psychological um, discussion that you had, but I thought I might just offer one more explanation, and that's that women, particularly obese women, can sometimes have changes in their sexual hormones, increase in testosterone, and that can lead to uh, something called clitoromegaly, an increase in the size of the clitoris, which would theoretically make it easier to contact the clitoris and maybe to orgasm from clitoral stimulation. So I agree, losing weight might have changed the tissues around the clitoris, the fat and the muscle, but uh, another thing might just be the physical size of the clitoris would be lower after a very obese woman lost half her body mass. Hi, Dan Savage. This is a response to the guy who wants to get the sex change operation. Um, and I have a statement, I guess, about him. 
He said the surgery would cost him like $8,000, which is a lot of money. But if it is really that important to him, like $8,000, you're an adult and have a job, even a low-paying job. If it really is that important to him, like saving up $8,000 really isn't that hard. And, you know, every time that you don't buy that extra pair of pants that you really want but don't really need, like take that money and put it in a jar. And that can go towards that one thing that he thinks is really important. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-201-2720. As ever, a huge thank you to all the subscribers to the Savage Lovecast Magnum. And a word from our producers, this holiday season, you can give the gift of the Savage Lovecast by going to www.savagelovecast.com. You're already a subscriber to the Magnum Edition. You might know some folks out there who would benefit from a Magnum subscription. You can give them the gift of the Savage Lovecast when you purchase an episode or a whole season just by clicking on gift. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeBandSavage. Follow Sophia Wallace, this week's guest of Cliteracy on Twitter at Sophia Wallace. Also check out her website, www.sophiawallace.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 